Welcome to Coast to Coast Cyber. This is our first official episode and uh, really excited to, to do this. I'm, I'm joining my brother, Craig Schober, out of Los Angeles on the other coast there. Before we dive right into this uh, podcast, really take a few minutes just to give you some backstory and maybe a, a brief introduction that might be helpful there because Craig is, is joining me as host on the other coast, but he's also my brother. He's also a partner in the business, Berkeley Baratronic Systems. So maybe to start us off, Craig, do you want to share a little bit about yourself? Who are you and what brings you here? Yeah, sure, Scott. Um, I'm actually broadcasting out of Long Beach, uh, a, little, a little different from the LA lifestyle. It's even more laid back, if that's possible for you guys to believe on the East Coast. <laughs> And um, I, you know, I am a uh, filmmaker, storyteller, editor, writer, all that kind of, I guess, creative back end. But I've always had an interest in technology, too, of course, grew up in a technology uh, sort of driven family. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about that uh, in this episode or future episodes that will come up. Um, but, you know, that's uh, basically what's going on here um what about what about you tell give give a little background on yourself yeah absolutely well again it, it's kind of cool because we both grew up in the same family but also in the same family business and even though we're we're, we're miles apart one coast versus the other I'm, I'm based out of our headquarters here for berkeley baratronics uh central new jersey right outside of new york city so the pace is a little bit different here and you guys are a little more laid back. Things are a little fast paced and a little crazy here. Uh, but, but certainly, again, my focus is a lot on technology. My background is computer science. So I tend to be more on the techie side. I think it's safe to say you're more on the creative side, the artsy side. So it's kind of like we complement one another a little bit. And I'm running our company, Berkeley Varitronic Systems. It was actually a family business. It was founded by our father, Gary Schober. He's our CTO, but he's since retired, hopefully relaxing with a fishing pole in his hand right now as we speak and record this first pilot episode. And uh, I'm really passionate about education. So a lot of the stuff that I'm doing besides running the company is educating people, talking about cybersecurity and how they could stay safe and, and share tips. And uh, fortunately, I've had the privilege of, of working on uh, three best-selling books with you as the uh, co-author. So we got to mm -hmm. kind of share our thoughts and, and expression. So it's kind of nice that we can now go to the airwaves instead of just the written page. And uh, we'll certainly weave in some of the things that we've learned and shared throughout the three books that we've written together. And I also do some um, some work on cybercrime radio. It, it was founded by Steve Morgan, uh, Cybersecurity Ventures. And I actually do a, a daily radio show, show uh, sharing the different headlines of cybersecurity and breaches and talk about ransomware and share some tips and things like that to keep people safe. So I spend a lot more of my time probably running the company and then, of course, on the media side, just educating people about cybersecurity. So um, again, look forward to a, a great episode here. And maybe, uh, Craig, you want to take us in and, and share just a little bit more about the format of this podcast and what people can expect a little bit. Yeah, I guess it's it's going to be pretty casual, uh, conversational, a couple segments, couple, hopefully all our, our, our news stories are going to you know, be topical and keep that way so that if someone checks in a month, two months later, you know, we're still talking about issues that affect uh, people's privacy and security and just technology in general. 
and um, you know we'll, we'll try to keep uh, things short and uh, sweet uh, to get you in and out of the story all the kind of talking points that you need uh, without you know bogging you down with too much information but you know I've been listening to podcasts for years and one thing I notice is they always start out short and then they get longer and longer as time goes on. And that makes sense because the hosts, the guests, they get to know each other more and more and the audience knows them more and more. And soon you reveal, you're revealing personal details about yourself in ways that you didn't think you were. Cause it's, you know, it's storytelling about yourself and about family and friends too. So let's hope that we don't reveal so much personal detail that it's used against us <laughs> as some kind of security threat. Uh, but uh, I look forward to the podcast getting longer and sharing more with each other. Yeah, you, you make a great point. I didn't think about that, but it's so true. The other podcast is kind of a, a fun segment that I think you and I kind of co-authored, we came up with is what keeps you up at night. And those are short, punchy segments where we, we really are amplifying the message of our guests. So we bring them on and say, hey, what keeps you up at night? And they share their cyber fear. And they really started out short and tight, and they're probably three minutes to four minutes max. But we started to have so many interesting conversations and different guests on that some of them actually went to 15, 20 minutes long, where they mm -hmm. started to share even beyond their cyber fear, looking forward to their future fears and just uh, all the cool stuff that's going on in cybersecurity. So hopefully, again, the same kind of thing will happen as we get into this series a little bit more. Now, now of course, before jumping into our first topic, like anything else, there are um, ways to make this whole thing work. And, and we have to thank our, our uh, sponsor, Cyberlytica. Uh, so Coast to Coast, uh, Cyber Coast to Coast is really brought to you by Cyberlytica. We thank them and uh, they're uh, the source for identity and stop the breaches that occur outside of your network perimeter. You don't need to install software. Cyberlytica will inform you when they learn that your assets are exposed. If you want to learn more about Cyberlytica and all the great stuff that they're doing, visit cyberlytica.com for more information. And uh, with that mention there of our sponsors, do you want to dive into our, our first uh, story here, Craig, and kind of set us up? Yeah, um, and it's a pretty good segue because, you know, Cyberlytica, they, they're scouring the dark web mm -hmm. for all types of uh, data, personal data on us. Um, whether you know it or not, it's out there. And um, this first story uh, comes from The Verge, although it was reported by many tech uh, outlets. Um, and it's about the uh, Life360 Life acquisition of Tile, or at least the proposed acquisition. It didn't go through yet, but it's, it's a good chance it's going to go through because I haven't heard of any kind of regulatory um, pushback. Um, but um, Life360 uh, is... Essentially, they're uh, you know a, a data collection company under the guise of a safety company. So I think what they do is they collect data on people, uh, whether it's in your car or in your house, and they use that data. They sell it to advertisers as you know so and so travels here and and this person does that, and uh, there you know there was an accident here, and and advertisers can use this data to then, of course, sell products back to these same people that the data is collected from. Um, you know, there's nothing illegal about that. It's been going on for years and years. Uh, and it's perfectly fine when it's used um, in, a, in a safe and secure manner. And um, all of the participants 
have clear kind of EULA, you know, the, the user license agreement, you, you know what you're giving and you know what you're getting in return. And generally the, the trade-off is, you know, you're, you're trading off a little bit of your privacy, maybe your security, and you're getting a service for free, you know, just very similar to how social media works and, and those type of things. But anyway, that's Life360. Now, Tile has had a very successful uh, tracking product for years that works on Android and iPhone. And it, it's Bluetooth, um, right? it's, it is Bluetooth, but over the past couple of years, Tile has kind of um, uh, broken out into a, a, a larger gathering of data, which mm -hmm. is GPS based. Because when you think about it, when you have enough of these uh, Tile, Bluetooth uh, things on keychains and wallets and laptops and all those things, you know, to track them in case they're stolen or misplaced. You have a full, you have a, a giant network. Now all that data feeds in back to the main app on your phone. And we know where the phone is because the phone has a GPS. So now what Tile has done and what Apple has similarly just started uh, recently with their AirTag thing, yeah. They, they create a giant network of millions of users. So you're not just tracking 30 to 40 foot range, which is what Bluetooth is. You're now tracking phone to phone. It's, it's anonymized, mm -hmm. but you're still tracking phone to phone. And of course, you know, researchers in the past have demonstrated ways to reverse engineer this so that you can actually uh, suss out the location of someone or some vital stats of their phone or how they use their phone, uh, that kind of thing. So that's the primary concern now. Now, of course, to make, to complicate matters, you have, it's an acquisition. So you have this company that's known for selling data. You have a company that's been, that's had a uh, tile has a good reputation of not selling data. They don't, they don't sell the data. They use that. They sell products and they use that service to sell more products, but it does raise the que important question. Now, what happens when a company that makes its money by selling data buys a company that doesn't do that? Mm -hmm. You know, obviously someone's going to, you know, call the shots and now who's, who's to say what's going to happen to that data. Yeah, that's going to be a, a strange situation because now your new boss is basically saying, hey, guys, we got to change our business model a little bit here. We could really monetize this. And yet their whole customer base and Tile does have a successful customer base. I've heard of my play with some of their stuff and I'm sure you have, too. It suddenly makes put you at odds then and say, geez, well, what do I do? And I guess they're. When you're saying they're selling uh, actual data, this this being Life 360 currently, they're not really saying, you know, Craig Schober was here in his Prius at this street at this time. It's really, right. they're talking about the metadata, data about data. But to your point, putting that together, I guess, is kind of dangerous because eventually you could figure out, yeah, that mm -hmm. is Craig Schober. That's who they're talking about. So it's, it's kind of it's that that line where we're constantly overstepping and, and crossing somebody's boundary for privacy. Yeah. And it's it's a third party issue, too. I mean, you might recall back when uh, that whole um, what was it called? Uh, Cambridge Analytica. Cam thank you. Cambridge Analytica. They you know, we're, weren't selling data directly to advertisers. They sell, pa they sell packages, you know, and advertisers use those packages to market and all those kinds of things. But how they do that is very nefarious because they'll 
put a, you know, a seemingly harmless quiz on Facebook mm -hmm. and someone takes a quiz, they answer the questions and then they send it to a friend and the friend answers the questions and so on and so on. And so they create a network. And so we don't care about your answers to the questions. We care about your connection to your friends. That's how, that's what they're thinking. That's how they make their money. So now they're connecting all these people. You're connecting the dots. And like you said, it's metadata. Metadata is very powerful. It can be used to, whether it's reverse engineered or, or directly, you know, that information is directly sucked from someone or sold to someone. It can be used to, you know, locate and do all kinds of things that violate, you know, privacy. And, and of course, if they're hacked for that data, now you have security issues, you have hackers knowing things that they should never know. So it just opens up a lot of problems. And um, when I was reading through the article, I, I couldn't help but notice that uh, Life360, you know, they, they, they're successful, and yet they reported a, a loss of 16.3 million in 2020. Yeah. Now, <laughs> who's to say any CEO is going to be is going to be presented with their their board or the you know the shareholders and say you got to you know you can't keep reporting losses. How are you going to generate revenue? Well, how else is a company that sells data to advertisers going to generate re revenue? They're going to say, hey, we just acquired Tile. Hey, what this? I got a great idea. Let's sell that data. You know, so it's it's kind of a no brainer. I don't th they deny that they have any current plans to sell data or to use the data they got from that acquisition of Tile, but current plans has nothing to do with the next quarter. You know, these, these companies work on very short cycles from quarter to quarter, and what they're doing right now has nothing to do with what they might be doing three months from now. Yeah, that's so true. And you, you gotta keep your shareholders happy, you gotta keep the board happy, your employees, your customers. You're at odds and it can be difficult there because you've got two very different business models for these two different companies. So perhaps this acquisition is not the best acquisition of all, at least from some of the stuff that we just talked about. And just to share one point, I think it's kind of interesting, just reflecting on, as I talk about this a lot with, with our smartphones, we're all glued to smartphones. We all download apps. Jeez, the average smartphone now in the United States, I think it has more than 50 apps downloaded. And an interesting stat I came across, and I love sharing this with people because it just helps us reflect for a moment. Um, the average uh, mobile phone user that has more than 50 apps, if they had to sit down and literally read from start to finish the terms and conditions, it would take over three months. And those are the terms and conditions that they agreed to, that they opted into on your smartphone. So what is it telling us? We're kind of being force fed these great apps, oftentimes for free. But what are we giving up? What are we trading for our precious metadata, our geolocation, access to our contacts or what we're typing into our, our browser, so on and so forth? it's getting to be more and more of a privacy concern for myself. So I'm trying to consciously look at my smartphone and go through once a month and look and say, if I have not used this app and whatever it is, it could be Candy Crush. If I haven't played Candy Crush in the past month, delete, gone. Mm -hmm. Just to keep my phone a little bit more clear so I'm not being tracked by the world because that's what, that's ultimately what's really happening. Yeah, and a, a lot of people. I know we have to move on to we move on to the next story soon, but I just wanted to add a lot of people um, prefer. You know, you're in the yearly or semi-yearly cycle of buying a new a new iPhone. Let's say because we're you know we're iPhone family for yeah. the most part. Um, 
what they do is instead of just dumping all the apps over, you start from scratch and you build from scratch and say, well, this app I know I need, this app I know I need and this one, but you know, these 20 apps, I haven't touched them in a while and they could be collecting data in the background. And so there's no need to do that. And you know, get the, you get the added benefit that your phone will usually uh, be a little bit swifter, a little act a little bit quicker too, if you don't have so many apps bogging it down and, and check sensors and data uh, checking. Um, going on in the background at all times. So that's one uh, useful tip I've heard that people tend to do. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's that's certainly uh, true. And uh, I, I think maybe it's time for all of us to do a little bit of housekeeping, take a look at our smartphone this weekend and just see if we can clean off some of the stuff we haven't been using. Great, great tip there. Yeah. All right, our next topic, let's dive into that there. It comes from Verge also. And Verge does have some, some awesome uh, research and articles. I always love reading some of their stuff. This one in particular caught caught my interest. And actually, I was reached out um, by LifeWire, and they, they asked me to do a uh, interview on this one. So it's kind of fresh in my mind just this week. And the article just came out. Uh, and it talks about Qualcomm. And well, Qualcomm, if you're familiar with Qualcomm, and they're out of, actually on your coast there, but they're based at headquartered out of San Diego. They've been around for many years and they really designed semiconductors and of course software, but really mm-hmm. they hold many of the key patents and have a lot of intellectual property. And they've done some amazing things over the years. In this particular one, I, I'm curious what your thought is and wonder what, you, what your take is when you hear it. It, it talks about Qualcomm um, releasing this new always on smartphone camera. And obviously, instantly, when you hear that your camera is always on, the, the red flags go up thinking about privacy. How private could be could it be if our camera is always on? Before I even share my take, I'm curious, what, what do you think about that? What's your initial gut say when you hear about that, thinking about you pull out your iPhone, or in this case, the first models are, I guess, Android with this new Snapdragon uh, part there. Your camera is always going to be on. Um, you know, personally, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me too much. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because I know, uh, I'm, I feel like I'm aware of these things. I've had smart assistants in the home, mm-hmm. that type of thing. And also, it's also the next logical step. I mean, you can look at how, how long have we've had um, Alexa's and Siri with us? Siri. Oh, over five years, you know, and we share those, those things are in our bedroom. And those are a form of always on because they are always listening for that keyword. Um, and I think Qualcomm, it's a little uh, disingenuous, but I, but when you read their marketing and their um, explanation of this always on camera feature, they like to compare it to that. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't see it as quite the same thing because it's not looking for a trigger word it's looking for a visual it's a it's a trigger and it's not even looking for from what i read on their specs it's not even a trigger face it's not doing facial recognition this is simply a way to wake up the phone when it sees anything that looks like anyone's face so right there you have a possible security privacy risks that kind of come to mind and that's those are the things that bother me a little bit i don't know what about you i think you're I think of the two of us, I would say you're a little more paranoid, maybe not by nature, but because you talk to so many people all the time that bring up these problems and you're asked about these problems, how could you not be a little you know, more paranoid than someone like me? Yeah, I think I am a little more paranoid by nature and maybe just dealing with some of the stuff being hacked and targeted in the past. Um, 
I guess I'm also, I, I love technology. And I'd say out of the two of us, I think you're a little bit more of an early adopter of technology. You embrace it immediately when the model comes out. I tend to be a little more conservative and say, hey, let me wait a little bit till some of the bugs and kinks get out of it. And, and to your point, I start thinking about what are the different security implications? Um, you know, if I if I pull up my my phone right now and do a FaceTime, I have to visually look at it to turn it on. So now maybe I don't have to physically lift my phone up, but geez, once other people can walk by and my phone could turn on and or turn off, I start to wonder how safe is it? What if it gets in the wrong hand? So on and so forth. So you start to think ahead and all the unknowns probably scare me more than just the obvious. I just don't think it's a great idea. I, I Maybe I liken it to some of the new phones. I see a lot of these, I think they're galaxies where they're, they're kind of foldable. And I'm sitting there looking at the screen and asking myself, geez, why do I need to fold my screen? It kind of reminiscent of old school, you know, late 80s into the 90s, the Motorola flip phone or whatever. That It's kind mm-hmm. of a, a renaissance of that maybe or something. But what advantage do I get from it? I have no idea. But young people seem to love it. I asked my kids and they're like, that's so cool. Oh, that's great. It folds yeah. down. There's a coolness factor, definitely. Um, I I think half of these features, I think they're all cool. That doesn't mean I'm going to spend money on them. But I think they're really, um, they're cool factors for both your friends and you're out in public. You know, when you're the first one to pull out the folding tablet phone, you know, the phone that starts as a phone, but you flip it out two or three times the size becomes a tablet. That's that's a show-off feature. That's saying, I have more money, I have more cloud, I'm more important, and look at me. It's the, you know Now, whether that stays with us and that form factor continues to be popular over the next few years, that's something we haven't seen yet because just not enough time has passed. But yeah, I, I think for now, I put it in a, a fad category. And you know, some things outgrow fads and sometimes the fad just dies off. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's true. And, and in the article, if, if you dig in, and I encourage people, do your own research. Don't take our word for it one way or another, because we all have our own personal opinions. And we respect that. But they even talk about, like, we're so used to when our camera's on, we're, we're on Zoom, the little green light's on, you know, okay, the camera's on, I'm being recorded. Now with this new feature that that they're touting, there's no light that illuminates to let you know that you're being recorded. And, and I guess we're already paranoid with cameras everywhere. And if you think about it, I guess technically you walk into a grocery store, you, you buy gas, you do anything today. You, go, you certainly go to Europe over in the United Kingdom, uh, get on a train or go to China, you're being filmed. I mean, it's mass surveillance. What What is being used? We don't really fully know, but we have a a pretty good idea. So it's getting worse and worse. But this is just one more step closer to this mass surveillance. But but it's even worse because I go to the bathroom. I take my phone in there. You know, you go to sleep. I put it next to my bed. It's it's taking the the personal space and privacy um, to the limit. And I guess that's that's just my biggest concern. So if if the jury's out for me, hey, I'll wait for a while before I will adopt a a smartphone that has a always on camera feature. Yeah, I think I could see this feature catching on with some Android phones. The the problem is, though, when you when you look into what Qualcomm saying is what they're really doing is they're trying to, uh, I think, consolidate more and more features onto a single processor. And they want to sell that processor to as many Android phones as possible. And that's fine because their business model of just licensing patents is 
slowly being eaten away by companies like Apple who make their own chips. Apple's making their own modems now, all that stuff. So Qualcomm only sees less revenue in the future if they, you know, stay the course. So they had to go into this route. You have to add more features onto a chip so that the chip just does more things. Um, but I, uh, I think it will catch on with some flagship Android phones. But you know, you got to remember also the the vast majority of Android phones are cheap, uh, uh, little burners and those kinds of things. I don't I think those, those are yeah, those aren't going to have these chips at least not for for some time. So if it catches on with the more expensive, you know, the thousand plus dollar flagship Android phones. Unfortunately, it's probably going to force Apple to make a similar play, which you would think they they wouldn't because Apple is there. They want to be known as the privacy security company. And, you know, they're hit and miss their record. But overall, I think they're trusted. The brand still holds up. It's still trusted more than than the likes of, of Google. Uh, so if Apple can introduce this feature in a way that enhances the user experience, and they can convince people that it's secure and safe. They're already doing Face ID, so they're kind of halfway there. If they can do all that, then I think even Apple users will accept that. And you know, that's for what it's worth. That's you know, taking a step in the right direction. Of course, you open yourself up when you when you have this kind of uh, thing on a processor level. Uh, you open yourself up to all kinds of of system level hacks that could take place, and that's the kind of stuff that scares me. It's not just about an app anymore that you could just delete because it's stealing data off your phone. It's now something. It's a hardware based issue, and you can't do anything about that once it's out there. Yeah, that's true. It's a good point because it's really baked in, uh, and and that's tough to change. You're gonna throw your yeah. phone out and go get another one? Pro probably not. Uh, and I do have to say, just to add one maybe final point here, when I think about Apple. I was always very scared with facial recognition as a form of authentication to turn on my phone or anything else. Doesn't matter what it is. Because I always said, geez, once your face is compromised, just like a fingerprint or something else, you only got one face, you only got one fingerprint. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's got to be done really secure. And I do have to say, I think Apple took what all the hard years and years of work that everybody else did and they streamlined it and perfected it to the point where it's really effective in an iPhone now, where I can just grab it, glance at it. I do, if it's dark, if it's bright, you can do it if you have a mask on, whatever the case may be, it's pretty effective. They did a good mm -hmm. job. And I think now even I, as a paranoid security person, will say, you know what? Yeah, I'm not gonna sit there and manually enter in my long code every time to have access to my phone. I'm just gonna glance down because I feel it's secure. So that balance between convenience and security, Apple met in this particular case. We'll, so we'll see about where this always on camera goes for the, uh, for the future. Um, you were gonna touch on, I think, one final story here in this last segment here of our, uh, of our podcast. What's that, Craig? Yeah. Um, well, you, you sent the story to me. And when I first looked at the story, I was like, well, it's not, it's a, I think it's back, back from August. And I was like, oh, it's, it's not the most topical thing. But then the more I started thinking about it, I'm like, this is going to creep up more and more. I'm, I'm positive because it's all about the infrastructure of IOT devices, specifically network uh, EV chargers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, out here in California, we have a lot of electric vehicles 
and we we have a lot of EV chargers. We still don't have nearly enough to match the chargers, uh, so people are uh, installing more home-based ones. And of course, there's there's plenty of public ones that keep sprouting up. Uh, I don't know the number offhand, but um, you know, Biden administration is pledging billions of infrastructure changes, uh, and a lot of that's going to the to the EVs. Um, so there was a problem that this security group, what is it, uh, Pen, Pen Test Partners, some, a UK-based uh, security company, found six vulnerabilities in six home electric charging brands, as well as one, um, I think it's the largest uh, public EV charging network, which is ChargePoint. Um, and so I immediately knew why you sent the story to me because we have a we have a connection. I mean, we we deal with ChargePoint, we deal with a lot of these uh, chargers, and we're always talking about IoT security. Um, give me your, uh, I guess, read on why 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 did you choose this story? Yeah, sure. Well, short back backstory. And I'm kind of glad to, to hear you share your thoughts first, because when I read the article recently, I said, this is really interesting from my perspective. I'm curious what your thoughts were. So I'm glad you shared that. But back in 2010, 2011, I remember fondly getting a phone call. um, And this was from Coulomb. And this was a a company developing electric vehicle chargers and partner with some other very large companies backing the money in the development. And they really focused on the back end of the, the kind of the payment wall and the handling of all the charger information there uh, to see what charges available and managing of all the, the microgrid type of stuff. Um, they, they approached us and said, geez, we, we realize in the next few years, there's going to be a tremendous need as people pivot from traditional uh, gas powered fossil fuel cars to EVs. And there's going to be a need for this large infrastructure build out of chargers. And, and that's their focus, but they didn't have a test tool because most of the communications between these chargers is all done via traditional um, cellular WAN, wide area network. So what makes our phones work from tower to tower to communicate, that's actually what the back end was, was being used for. That was all 3G technology there. So we built a little simple handheld tester that all it was used for was basically to say, hey, which carrier at this given spot is the best to use to install an electric vehicle charger? And also where's the best spot to place the antenna? Simple tool, but it worked extremely effective. And we sold hundreds of them. It wasn't the tens of thousands that we were hoping for when we first designed it, presented it to Coulomb, who later became ChargePoint, which is one of the largest now out there. Um, But just recently in the past couple of years, we've seen this logarithmic explosion of uh, electrical contractors that are getting certified to install electric vehicle chargers. And who's recommended our tool, the the Octopus, being used to find out where in the world to um, place these electric vehicle chargers, which carrier to sign up for, and where where do we place the antenna? So it's kind of an entire um, 360 that I've seen just in the past 10 years or so. And I think if you talk to anybody now, pretty much everybody, know somebody or themselves are kind of looking at an electric vehicle saying, hey, maybe it's time to consider this. Gas prices are high. I don't, I don't know what they're recently by you, but I fill up, I have a, a gas hog SUV, big V8 engine. I, the other day it was $95 to fill with Supreme. 
Wow. I almost had a heart attack. That's a lot of money to put in to just commute my, you know, a couple miles that I go and drive on the weekends. It gets expensive and I'm filling up about every two weeks. So it's costly. It's not that efficient as it once was with prices soaring. And you're in California coast there. I'm assuming your cost for gas is probably a little higher. Yeah. Um, let's see. The gas station by me, I don't, I don't, we don't drive a whole lot because I, I don't have a commute, but, um, you know, we still fill up the tank maybe once a month or so. And we take these occasional trips to, uh, visit Kelly's, um, family. Uh, some of them live out in Las Vegas. So that's, you know, that's a 350 miles and we'll take, yeah. Um, it's the gas station by me. I think it's four twenty-five a gallon. Um, and that's on the cheap side. I've seen over $5 when you get into like a busy intersection somewhere in the middle of Los Angeles. Yeah. You're looking at high prices, kind of like when I used to commute back from back and forth from Brooklyn to New Jersey. Yeah. Always. I always filled my tank in New Jersey because as soon as I got into Brooklyn or Manhattan price almost doubled. Like wow. if you go to one of those gas stations in the city, I don't even want to think about what those are at right now, but I would imagine they're well over uh, $5. Yeah, that's That's just crazy. That is crazy. But, but I guess to the point with this article, the part that's interesting is now we're, we're at the point where we're seeing that mass adoption. I think of all the 50 manufacturers, major manufacturers of automobiles, they're all releasing some form of an EV. It was prior to this that it was more hybrids and, hey, we're going to release this. And they were futuristic cars that you saw at the auto show, but they weren't real. But now, if you think about it, they're real. They're here. They're on the roads. We don't see them as much on the East Coast, but it's starting to happen. As I glance around, I see a lot of Teslas. I see a lot of other Kias and, and uh, what's that other brand there, Billy? Um, Polestar. Billy's looking at that. A nice electric vehicle, which mm -hmm. I think is tied somehow with a Volvo. I know Mercedes, Porsche, they've got their own EVs coming out. So it's kind of interesting. Um, and not just the fact that it's a, a, a different type of car. I think the, the feeling that you get from people is it gives you some level of performance too. It's quiet. It's cleaner for the environment. You hit that pedal and you go. I think the price is still a little bit high. So we're starting to see that change. But from the security implications, I think, as usual, everybody is race to market and all these chargers. And, and I was at Costco the other day just looking and you can buy off the shelf a home charger for your electric vehicle. And it wasn't that expensive. It was on 300 and something dollars. And I said, wow, the mm -hmm. price has really come down. Um, and, and again, as more and more electrical contractors are certified to install uh, home chargers, I think you're going to start to see more and more mass adoption, as, especially as the price hopefully comes down. Um, but, but the vulnerabilities are there, as, as you point out in this article points out, if people can hack in and find these back doors and get into our, usually the chargers, I should say, are connected into our, our Wi-Fi home routers, if they could find a back door and get into the passwords, and now it affects all of our other devices, mm -hmm. th those vulnerabilities are real. So if you are installing it yourself or you're getting a licensed contractor, make sure you take a few minutes to question the security. Does it have long, strong passwords set up there? Are you using WPA2, WPA3 encryption? Are you not broadcasting your SSID? Just, just doing common sense Wi-Fi uh, protocol just to keep the thing safer. Yeah, one of the um, 
interesting things too when i th- i thought about when i was reading the article is that they pointed to what uh you know what damage can this actually do like what's the worst that can happen and you know before i read it i thought oh well maybe they're skimming power maybe they're somehow skimming micropayments i you know but it's on a, a kind of a individual basis oh a consumer got hacked you know big deal but then when you read into it further you kind of see that if these all work on a network and if this is a network that's essentially you know uh, part of our critical infrastructure the the electric power grid who's to say that they can't take all of these public and maybe private as well uh ev charging stations and now link them together and send false data that they're drawing too much power or you know you're you're it, it reminds me of the um what's the the hack with the uh, remember the centrifuge hack uh, that israeli stuxnet. company yeah the stuxnet thing the, it all worked off the premise of the centrifuge was spinning too fast or out of control and recording but, something but, else huh? exactly the sensors yeah. were they were the hackers were fooling the sensors into lying so yeah. no one knew any better you know if you could do something like that to the entire power grid now you have a major uh calamity that you're setting up for Oh yeah, yeah. I, I try to think of even even crazier things. Imagine if somebody wants to be a Bitcoin miner and they hack in, and now they start using, um, you know, the charging network, and, and obviously the number of computers and the processing power that's inside of a smart car, an electric vehicle, is hundreds of times more than a traditional fossil fuel car. So you've got a lot of horsepower there for processing. You're tied in with energy, which is certainly needed for Bitcoin mining. Mm-hmm. One could kind of fantasize and say, geez, it's, it's the perfect storm for some of these hackers looking yeah. to mine Bitcoins. That's a good one. I didn't even think of that. You think like a criminal and that <laughs> that's important, you know, in order to catch like a criminal. a criminal to catch them. Yeah, great. Right on. Well, yeah, well, it was certainly three, three great topics. I encourage people Take a moment, read over these articles. And again, we'd love to hear your feedback, your thoughts, share it, uh, good, bad, or ugly, whether you agree or disagree with Craig and I. And uh, and thank you so much for joining an episode here of uh, Cyber Coast to Coast. This again is our first episode here. It's kind of a pilot, but again, we do want to thank our sponsor, Cyberlytica. Cyberlytica is your source to identify and stop the breaches that occur outside of your network perimeter. You don't need to install any software. Cyberlytica will inform you when they learn that your assets are exposed. If you want to learn more about Cyberlytica, some of the cool stuff that they're doing on the dark web, visit cyberlytica.com for more information. Again, I'm your host from the East Coast, New Jersey, New York, Scott Schober. And Craig, you want to close it out? I'm your host from the West Coast in Long Beach, California. This is Craig uh, saying goodbye and we'll uh, talk to you next week, I guess. Take care, all. All right. Stay safe. Bye now.